As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Have you been waiting for just the right job? Then welcome to the end of your search. Amazon has seasonal warehouse jobs in your area, and now is a great time to apply. You can start getting paid right away and work close to home. Applying is easy. You don't even need an interview. So what are you waiting for? Come join the team and get a great seasonal job offer today. Visit Amazon.com slash hiring. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. After her husband Charlie died in 1931, there were two things that remained in this world that Nancy Maddox loved more than anything, her children and her Bible. Nancy had been born and raised in the Kentucky backwoods, and she'd been brought up to believe that every word of the Bible was the literal truth. She lived a good and virtuous life in the servitude of the Lord. She went to church every Sunday and read her Bible every day. And more importantly, The lessons she learned in those pages she taught to her own children, which made it all the more perplexing to her why her daughter Kathleen seemed to be headed on a pathway towards sin and damnation. For a time, at least, it seemed she'd been truly blessed. She and her husband Charlie had been spared the worst of the Depression. And in 1930, they'd actually managed to save up enough to purchase a nice little home for themselves in Ashland, Kentucky. Charlie had a good job working for the railroad, which was more than enough to support their family. But the Lord works in mysterious ways. Things began to fall apart about a year after they purchased their home, when Charlie died suddenly of pneumonia. With no husband and no job, it fell to Nancy to support her three children on Charlie's pension of about $60 per month. From then on, it would prove to be a difficult life. But by being frugal and watching every penny and trusting in the Lord, they were just able to keep their heads above water. The real problems in her home were coming from her 15-year-old daughter Kathleen, who constantly nagged her that she wouldn't let her out of the house to have any fun. Now, Nancy wasn't any fool. She knew the kind of fun Kathleen wanted to have, going to movies and wearing makeup and going out dancing with boys. She'd have none of that in her house. That way lie the road to perdition. Kathleen really loved her mother and didn't want to disobey her. But Mama just wouldn't listen to reason. It was always the church this and the church that. Couldn't her mother understand that she just wanted to have a little fun? Kathleen felt she had a right to live her life how she wanted, just as long as she wasn't doing anything bad. But Ashland was a small community, and everyone knew everyone's business. If Kathleen wanted to have any sort of social life, it would have to be done in secret. In other words, somewhere that wasn't Ashland. As it turns out, the city was linked to Ohio by bridge just over a river. And on the other side of that river lie the town of Ironton, a place that was known for its dance clubs. These were places where a girl could let her hair down and have a little fun for a change, 
Ironton also had a reputation as a place built for sin, with bars and prostitutes and people of the very lowest character on every street corner. But that only made it more exciting for a 15-year-old girl looking to escape her humdrum existence. Sneaking across the bridge to Ironton became a regular occurrence for Kathleen. It was there in a club called Ritzy Rays that Kathleen met a handsome older man named Colonel Scott. That was his name, incidentally, not a military rank, although he allowed this fiction to carry on. Kathleen thought she'd met an army colonel, when in fact, he was just a smooth-talking charmer and a married one to boot, although she didn't know that at the time. Kathleen was flattered to be receiving so much attention from this man. He was 23 years old and seemed so worldly. She fell head over heels for him. What started as a series of clandestine trips to go dancing turned into a series of clandestine rendezvous with her new boyfriend. Then in the spring of 1934, Kathleen discovered that she was pregnant. She told Colonel, who responded by telling her he'd just been called away on urgent military business. But he'd be back for her in time to see the birth of their child. You just wait. But after several months, Kathleen finally began to catch on that Colonel Scott wasn't planning on coming back at all. All things considered, Nancy Maddox proved to be surprisingly tolerant about her daughter's pregnancy. She clearly wasn't happy about her daughter's sins, but despite it all, she still loved the girl. And forgiveness was a clear tenet of the Bible. Nancy told Kathleen that she could stay with her and have the baby. All she had to do was repent her sins and begin her life anew in the church. This was not the life Kathleen saw for herself at all. Okay, so things hadn't worked out with Colonel Scott, who turned out to be nothing but a low-down scoundrel. But Kathleen would be wiser with the next man to enter her life. It's not entirely certain where Kathleen met William, but we do know that he really had been in the army. And like Colonel before him, he quickly swept her off her feet. He was 25 years old when the two of them got married in 1934. Kathleen fudged her age considerably for the marriage license, listing her own age as 21. She was honest with him from the start. William knew the child Kathleen carried was not his own, yet he didn't seem to care. To Nancy, William seemed like her dream ticket out of her mother's home into a life of her own. On November 12, 1934, Kathleen gave birth to a healthy baby boy at Cincinnati General Hospital. She named him Charles in honor of his maternal grandfather. And although the baby wasn't his, William's last name would eventually make its way onto the birth certificate under father. It was an honest mistake, but one that Kathleen didn't particularly mind. It gave the boy a last name of his own, and removed some of the stigma of his illegitimacy. Besides, Charles Manson had a nice ring to it, didn't it? I'm Nate Hale, and if you play this podcast backwards looking for secret messages, then you clearly have way too much time on your hands. And this is The Conspirators. Domestic life didn't really seem to take for Kathleen Manson. Even after Charles was born and her husband William took a job working at a dry cleaner. The thought of her staying home and being a good little housewife and mother was too much for her. 
She began heading out to Ironton at night for more drinking and dancing, leaving baby Charlie in the care of her mother or for William to look after. The marriage didn't last long after that. On April 30th, 1937, William filed for divorce on the grounds of Kathleen's gross neglect of duty, which was a sort of general phrase used to describe all of her nightly carousing. Kathleen didn't contest the divorce. Kathleen took her maiden name of Maddox back, but her son Charlie would remain with the last name Manson. Since the courts did not recognize Charlie as William's biological son, he got out of the marriage without having to pay child support. That left Kathleen in a major lurch. With no financial support and no marketable job skills, she needed to find a way to make money fast. Two weeks after her divorce, Kathleen managed to track down Colonel Scott and took him to court in Kentucky, where she filed a paternity suit against him. Scott didn't deny that Charlie was his child, but nonetheless, he stubbornly ignored every judgment the court levied against him to pay child support. Kathleen and Charlie bounced around a lot over the next few years. They sometimes stayed with their mother Nancy, and other times with various friends and relatives. There's no evidence during this time that Kathleen ever tried to find a job. What she did do a lot of was drink. Kathleen became a raging alcoholic, and rumors abound about her turning to prostitution and petty crime for money. One story goes that Kathleen actually sold Charlie to a childless waitress for a pitcher of beer forcing one of the boy's uncles to step in and reclaim him. In 1939, Kathleen would be sent to prison for five years for robbing a service station with her brother, who used a ketchup bottle he pretended was a gun. After that, Charlie was sent to live with an aunt and uncle in West Virginia while Kathleen served her sentence. She was paroled in 1942, and mother and son lived in a series of rundown hotel rooms for the next few years. In 1947, unable to support the two of them any longer, Kathleen tried to place her then 13-year-old son in a foster home. But there was no such home available at the time. So the court placed Charles Manson in the Jabot School for Boys in Terre Haute, Indiana. Ten months later, Charlie escaped the home and tried returning to live with Kathleen, but she rejected him. The teenage Manson turned to petty crime to survive. He committed a string of burglaries throughout Indianapolis that would eventually land him in a juvenile detention facility, where he managed to escape after only one day. He was quickly recaptured and sent to Boys Town. Four days after that, Manson escaped again with another boy. The two of them committed a couple armed robberies and a few more burglaries, after which Manson was recaptured and sent to the Indiana Boys School. The Indiana Boys School was a much more terrible place than any of the other juvenile facilities Charlie had been sent to. There, the 13-year-old Manson suffered a series of brutal sexual assaults. Things got so bad for Charlie that he developed a new defense mechanism that he called the Insane Game to help protect him whenever he was in danger. He figured out that if he acted crazy enough, screaming and flailing his arms around, other predators sometimes just left him alone. But it only worked sometimes. In 1951, Charlie had enough and escaped again with two other boys. The three of them were recaptured in Utah after robbing several filling stations and driving a stolen car across state lines to California. Transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines was a federal offense. This time, Manson was sent to Washington, D.C.'s National Training School for Boys. They tried offering Manson some schooling, but the boy steadfastly refused to get with the program. Manson was tested 
and despite being shown to have an above-average IQ, he was also practically illiterate. In addition, his caseworkers noted that he had a massive inferiority complex, one that he tended to compensate for by acting aggressively towards other people. Charles Manson was sent to a series of different minimum security institutions after that. In 1952, during a stint in a federal honor camp, he was caught sodomizing another boy while holding a razor blade to his throat. From there, he bounced around through a number of other facilities before finally landing in the Federal Reformatory at Chillicothe, Ohio, where he managed to shock everyone by appearing to turn over a new leaf. There, he appeared to renounce his formerly violent ways after showing good work habits and raising his education level from the 4th to the 7th grade. He was granted parole in May of 1954. He would eventually return to live with his mother in West Virginia. In January 1955, Manson married a hospital waitress named Rosalie Jean Willis. Around October of that year, Manson took his then-pregnant wife to Los Angeles in a stolen car. Once again, Manson was arrested for violating the Dyer Act for transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines. For this infraction, he was given five years probation, but he failed to appear at a Los Angeles hearing for an identical charge out of Florida and was subsequently sentenced to three years prison at Terminal Island in San Pedro, California. Terminal Island was a minimum security facility for low-level offenders, but it was still a prison, one where Manson quickly realized his crazy Charlie act wouldn't work to keep him safe. So Manson did what he did best all his life. He adapted, and he changed his tactics. The prison had a wide variety of self-improvement courses available to inmates, and at 22, Charlie spurned all the opportunities presented to him, except one. In 1936, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People became a massive bestseller, making Carnegie one of the most famous men in America. People across the country flocked to the Dale Carnegie Institute to learn the lessons he'd gained through a lifetime of sales. Terminal Island had its own Dale Carnegie program, and despite there being a long waiting list to get in, Prison officials hoped the positive outlook the course provided would do Manson some good. Manson was bumped to the front of the line, and by all accounts, he took to the program surprisingly well. Something in the Dale Carnegie lessons resonated with Manson in a way that no other lessons ever had before. Through Carnegie, Manson learned new ways to approach people and ingratiate himself with them, by building them up and making them feel like they were the most important person in the world. Manson proved to be a natural at it, which made it all the more surprising when the prison's star pupil quit the program before completing the entire four-month course. But what no one but Manson understood was that he felt he'd learned everything he needed. While Manson was in prison, his wife Rosalie gave birth to their son, Charles Manson Jr. Although Rosalie would visit Charlie in prison for a while, about a year into his sentence, Charlie's mother informed him that Rosalie was now living with another man. Two weeks before he was scheduled for a parole hearing, Manson tried to escape by stealing a car. His parole was denied, and he was given five years probation. Charlie did finally receive parole in September 1958. That same year, Rosalie divorced him and took his son away. Back out on the streets, Charlie tried a new money-making venture using some other skills he'd acquired in prison, becoming a pimp for a couple underage girls. He was later caught attempting to cash a forged U.S. Treasury check. A pair of federal agents questioned Charlie and showed him the forged check. But as soon as they looked away, the check disappeared. Charlie had eaten it. 
It wasn't enough to get him out of trouble, though. Both federal agents testified that they'd seen the check, and that was good enough for the courts. Manson received a 10-year suspended sentence and probation after one of the sex workers he employed named Leona, who sometimes went by the names Candy Stevens made a tearful appeal before the court that Charlie had agreed to marry her if he went free. The court appeared to buy the woman's story because Charlie was released and the two of them did get married. But the honeymoon didn't last long. Charlie got caught again transporting Leona and another woman to New Mexico for the purposes of prostitution. Charlie skipped town after that, and in 1960 he was once again arrested in Laredo, Texas for violating his parole. This time he was sent back to California to serve out his 10-year sentence. In July 1961, after a year spent in the Los Angeles County Jail, Charles Manson was sent to the federal penitentiary at McNeil Island. Counting reform school, Manson had spent nearly half of his 26 years behind bars. Several transformative events that would help shape Charles Manson's life occurred during this latest period of incarceration. McNeil Island proved to be a school of a different sort for Manson. There were plenty of inmates with lots of time on their hands and lessons they were willing to share with an eager young inmate. There were self-proclaimed sorcerers and hypnotists, born-again Christians and white supremacists, and then there were the Scientologists. Manson met a few avowed Scientologists in prison, and although he didn't completely convert to their beliefs, much of what they had to say about the way people needed to clear their minds and embrace spiritual freedom without negativity struck a chord with him. He saw ways to incorporate the teachings of Scientology along with the Dale Carnegie lessons in helping him potentially become a better pimp. Most prostitutes he'd known had terrible self-images by telling these girls that they didn't have to be weighted down by their pasts and that they were powerful and could achieve anything they wanted. Charlie realized he could talk these young women into doing practically anything he wanted. Although Charlie didn't read much himself, he did listen to other inmates who talked about the books they'd read. One of the most popular novels that was being passed around the prison back then was Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land. It's a story about a human raised on a Martian space colony who starts his own religion, experiences group sex, then uses his psychic powers to eradicate his enemies before dying a martyr's death. Most books were just made-up nonsense to Manson, but this Heinlein guy had something going that he could relate to. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In 1963, Leona gave birth to another son by Charlie, Charles Luther. Not long after that, she filed for divorce. On McNeil Island, Manson met legendary gangster Alvin Creepy Carpus, who introduced him to playing the guitar. Carpus took a shine to this kid who kept hanging around him. Most guys wanted to talk about the old gangster days and hear what it was like to knock over banks and get in shootouts with the cops. But Charlie just wanted to learn to play guitar like Carpus. Music played a major role in Manson's life. Although he had grown up listening to Frank Sinatra and Bobby Vinton, it was in prison that he first heard the music of a band that would speak to him like none other before. They were four young guys from Liverpool who called themselves the Beatles, and in them, Manson saw everything he wanted for himself. 
Although Carpus decided early on that Manson was a mediocre guitar player at best, Charlie thought he was destined for the same sort of superstardom that was being showered on the Fab Four. Manson saw on TV all those millions of screaming teenage girls swooning over George, Paul, John, and Ringo, and he just knew that's what he was destined for as well. After that, whenever Charlie's mother Kathleen visited, all he would ever talk about was how he was going to get out of here and become a famous musician. He talked incessantly about how much money he was going to have and how many cars and mansions he was going to own. Charlie spent every waking minute in prison hunched over his guitar and writing songs. Prison officials soon became aware of the change in Charlie's behavior, noting how committed he was to his music. After six years, they transferred him back to the minimum security facility at Terminal Island. There, in Terminal Island, Charlie befriended a man named Philip Kaufman, who was serving a 5-20 to year sentence for drug possession. Before going to prison, Kaufman had worked as an extra in movies and TV, and when Charlie heard this guy was connected to show business, he moved in on what he considered to be a golden opportunity. Kaufman liked Charlie. He heard him play guitar and he thought he had talent. Plus, he was a slick talker, always ready to spout off some quote from Scientology, or even some long passage from the Bible. But Kaufman was no fool. He also had a strong BS meter, and he knew deep down that the only thing Charlie worshipped was Charlie himself. There were other parts of Manson that Kaufman wasn't so fond of. For one thing, Manson was also really, really racist. Kaufman would often listen to the man go off on one of his long rants about how black people were all inferior to whites, and that they were all just a bunch of violent savages. Prison officials noted that despite Manson's devotion to his music, he seemed to have little interest in bettering himself in any way, turning down every opportunity to take vocational classes or participate in other social activities. Prison officials noted in their reports that they didn't expect very much good to happen to Manson in the future. Kaufman, on the other hand, thought Manson might have a real shot at making something of himself with his music. The guy wasn't much of a guitarist, but he thought he had a pretty good voice. And he knew people who'd gotten recording contracts with less talent than that. When Manson came up for parole, he gave him the name of a guy he knew named Gary Stromberg at Universal Studios and told him to look him up and say Phil Kaufman had sent him. Charles Manson was released from prison in March 1967. He was 32 years old at the time. But the prospect of freedom proved to be too much for him at first, and he actually begged officials to let him stay in a little longer. They didn't, and he found himself out on the streets with a cheap suitcase and a guitar, and no idea what he was going to do next. Manson didn't feel he was ready yet to meet Kaufman's contact at Universal Studios, but he did have the numbers of some other parolees from Terminal Island, one of whom was living in Berkeley and who told him he should come up there. Manson arranged with his Los Angeles parole officer to relocate north. Berkeley in the 1960s was unlike anything Manson had ever seen. Men had long hair that hung past their shoulders. Women dressed in bell-bottoms, and it was obvious many of them weren't wearing bras. Some of these young people openly paraded outside the University of California Berkeley campus brandishing placards and chanting anti-war slogans. The air was thick with the aromas of food vendors, incense, and human sweat. And of course, drugs. Lots and lots of drugs. Everyone seemed to be smoking something. It was as far removed from the straight-laced Christian communities Manson had known as a boy as he could imagine. It was as if he'd just traveled to Mars. Although Charlie was openly delighted by all the youthful rebellion around him, there was one sight that horrified him. 
He saw groups of young black men in quasi-military garb flocking together in the streets. Charlie had never seen the Black Panthers before, and although the Panthers actually more often did things like set up free health clinics and offered breakfast for ghetto kids, Manson could only see the members that openly carried firearms. To Charles Manson, this was nothing short of a growing insurrectionist army preparing for war. Manson spent his first few days in Berkeley wandering the Cal Berkeley campus and soaking in the sights. He had no interest in protesting the war overseas, and the sight of all those angry black men quietly terrified him. But there were still plenty of things going on all around to get excited about. Charlie had always thought of himself as a rebel, and here in Berkeley, he felt he fit right in. When he bragged to people that he just got out of jail, many of these young people thought he was cool and saw it as Manson standing up against the man. Manson would have liked to have tried supporting himself as a street musician, but there were already so many young people strumming guitars on street corners that he knew he didn't have much of a chance to stand out. And standing out was the most important thing of all to Charles Manson. He also soon realized he wouldn't be able to fall back on his previous skills as a pimp, since sex was basically free wherever and whenever anyone wanted it. Manson sure as hell wasn't going to get a job washing dishes or packing boxes in some warehouse. All that was beneath someone like him. He knew he was destined for greatness. He just had to find the right opportunity. He met 23-year-old Mary Bruner, a Cal Berkeley graduate who worked as an assistant librarian on campus. Mary stood out to Charlie from all the other girls because of how conservatively she dressed. She was a Wisconsin native, and she still wore blouses buttoned all the way to the neck. Charlie could see from a mile off she was lonely. It didn't take a lot of work for Manson to ingratiate himself with her, and when he casually mentioned that he didn't have anywhere to stay, Mary took the bait and told Charlie he could crash at her place for a few days. A few days turned into a few weeks, and from there into a few months. Pretty soon Mary was fully supporting the two of them, while Charlie prowled the streets with his guitar. Although at first Mary didn't like that Charlie kept bringing other girls to their apartment, he convinced her that it was the summer of free love, and the two of them needed to experiment. Besides, none of those other girls stayed around long. Mary thought she and Charlie had a real lasting relationship. All the other girls meant nothing to him. Manson was a master at convincing women that they were special, and that each of them was the one. For example, in Mary's case, she was really into environmental causes. Manson personally couldn't give less of a crap about the environment, but he feigned interest and parroted back enough of what she said to make her fall hard for him. For a predator like Charles Manson, the Berkeley campus was a fine place to set up his lair. But he still had bigger plans, and bigger dreams of fame and stardom that would take him elsewhere. He began heading into San Francisco, and from there to the Haight-Ashbury district, which was renowned for its hippie culture and for the free flow of LSD on the streets. Originally synthesized in 1938 as a medical stimulant, lysergic acid diethylamide became the drug of choice throughout the 1960s. Although people like Timothy Leary and Ken Kesey were openly singing the drug's virtues, it wasn't until a chemist named Augustus Owsley Stanley III found a cheap and easy way to synthesize mass quantities of the drug that it became so widespread. At only $2 a dose, Stanley set the street price and insisted it remain low so that the masses could enjoy it. And the place to go in 1967 if you wanted to score some LSD was the hate. 
That summer, with schools out, the streets of the hate were teeming with thousands of young people tripping out and looking to expand their minds. Manson realized that many of these young men and women were just waiting for the right person to come along and tell them what to do. He knew he could be that guy. But first he needed to adapt, and to learn. For days Manson drifted from one street corner guru to another, not speaking, but listening, and learning. He was in no rush to go into business for himself yet. He had Mary supporting him back home, so he felt he had plenty of time to hone his craft. When Charles Manson finally did begin preaching on street corners, young people flocked to him. What he spouted was mostly a mix of Beatles song lyrics, biblical passages, and self-empowerment nonsense he cobbled together from Scientology and Dale Carnegie. Sometimes he'd sing songs and play guitar. The young people ate it up. He talked about becoming free by giving up all your worldly possessions, about how death and fear were just illusions that were holding you back from ascending to a higher plane of being. You needed to break away from your inhibitions if you wanted to be truly free. Charles Manson's rap wasn't particularly different from hundreds of other street corner philosophers who were out in force that summer. But Manson had a gift for oration that riveted the crowds in a way that few others could match. But even his gift for gab wasn't enough. Many young people would pledge their lifelong allegiance to him one day, then split the following morning. If he was going to pull this con off, Manson was going to need the sort of followers who wouldn't leave him. Manson narrowed his focus to a special kind of person he would have to recruit. It was a lesson he'd learned during his days as a pimp. Find the most broken individuals and build them up, and they'll follow you anywhere. Charlie got hold of a 1948 Chevrolet, and every few weeks he'd leave the hate and head out on meandering two- and three-day drives up and down the California coast, looking for lost souls. In May 1967, he took the Chevy South towards Venice Beach. He parked the car and got out. He strolled the sidewalk that paralleled the Pacific Ocean, the sun high and warm on his shoulders, the smell of salt spray and opportunity in the air. There were benches all along the sidewalks where people could sit and watch the ocean. On one of those benches sat a tiny, sobbing, red-headed girl. Charlie walked up to the crying girl and asked her, What's wrong? At first, the girl was a little apprehensive. The stranger seemed like a hobo, with maybe a little more class. But it wasn't long before the girl opened up and told Charlie a story about how she'd run away from home after getting into the latest of an endless string of arguments with her domineering father. Her father stubbornly refused to understand that she was a free spirit, someone who couldn't be forced to remain living under his rules. Way out of a room is not through the door, Manson said. Just don't want out, and you're free. That struck the young woman as remarkably profound. What's your name, he asked her. She told him it was Lynette Frome. They call me the gardener, Charlie replied, because I tend to all my flower children back in the hate. Then he offered her a ride. At first, Lynette said no. She had to finish her semester at school. But when Charlie got off the bench and began walking away, the girl who would later be known as Squeaky, and who tried to assassinate the President of the United States, jumped up and ran after him. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. This is the first of a special three-part series I'm bringing to you. Part two will be out next Monday, with the third part coming out the following week. 
I've been wanting to try some longer form shows for a while now, and I'd love to know what you think. Feel free to send me your feedback on the Conspirators Facebook page or by sending me an email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in helping support the show, we're on Patreon, where you can get access to all sorts of great rewards, including t-shirts, stickers, magnets, and our exclusive bonus minisodes. If you're interested in helping us out, I'll post a link in the show notes below. I'd also love to read your reviews on Apple Podcasts. As always, I'd like to encourage you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave me a positive review. Every bit of your feedback helps boost the show's profile on the site. If you're not on Apple, don't worry. We're also available on Stitcher, Patreon, the Google Play Store, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join me next week for part two of our series on the life and crimes of Charles Manson.